0: So how do you respond to the reading from Isaiah chapter 34? Particularly when it says in verse 2, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. How do you respond to such ferocious words? Violent words words blood soaked words well there's any number of ways that we could respond we could respond in fear and terror and that's appropriate we we could respond in kind of rubbing our hands together and saying oh goody the people who have wronged me and hurt me and offended me and done injustice to me their day is coming praise the Lord But what came to my mind this morning as I thought about these words again was a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says this, There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, civilizations, these will come and go. And compared to your life, they are like the life of a gnat. But it is immortals Those of us who live and breathe, those of us who are made in the image of God, we are immortal in the sense that we will never perish, we'll either go to be with God in heaven one day, or we will live in destruction in hell depending upon our response to God in faith. There are no mere mortals. Immortals are the ones with whom we joke, the ones with whom we work and marry and snub And exploit. There are immortal horrors or there are everlasting splendors, depending upon the focus of their faith. So we must not play. Our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken to be serious, not flippant, no superiority. No presumption. Our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins of people in spite of their rebellion against God. No mere tolerance or indulgence or the imitation of love but serious love that is willing to hold eternity in stake. We are those who this morning you are standing on this side of eternity. The ones who will face the judgment of God or ones who are called to help to deliver a catalyst of the gospel for those who will face one day the judgment of God. And so it should create within us not only a sense of the mercy of God on us for what we deserve, but also in urgency and in compassion and a burden to teach the gospel, to bring the gospel to those around us who do not know Jesus. So they don't have to experience the writings of Isaiah chapter 34. Do we feel the burden of eternity? Do we feel the burden of speaking and interacting and working with, going to school with, sitting underneath the the teaching of those who will not just merely die in this life but will face eternity either in heaven or hell. And we'll face the judgment of God. We've been walking through the five truths that should frame our eschatology. Eschatology which is simply just our understanding of the end times. And we've tried to, instead of looking at the pieces of the puzzle and trying to fit them together, what we've tried to do is just look at the overarching picture. Kind of see the landscape of the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament and and so, so while that has uh, been beneficial for us, uh, hopefully it hasn't been terribly overwhelming as we've covered a lot of ground in our time together. In order to really make this effective, I would encourage you to, to use the, the, the study guides that I've given to you, to use the, the notes so that we can, so you can fill out a lot of the things that we can't cover in, in our little bit of time together. Uh, there's also one more class that we'll be meeting at, from 9 to 10.30 uh, that Bo Williamson is, is facilitating. Uh, it's been a, a great encouragement to those who have come just to, to talk through these things and to fill out our understanding of what will happen at the end. At the end of the day, we understand there is one common reference point. There is one person who stands from beginning to end. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and that is who, Church? Jesus Christ Jesus is that common reference point and he provides the edges of the puzzle and the picture that we find in the scripture from start to finish helps us know how to begin to put these pieces together as we've been talking about the promises of God as we've been understanding the the, the points in history in which God has made clear promises to his people hopefully By this morning, things will begin to come together into focus as you see how God will keep his promises to his people and we we can begin to understand then how this plays out in the end. So let's cover some ground that we covered last week and catch up to where we are this morning. We talked about God who is a promise keeping God and we saw last week that God is faithful to punish sin. We saw that in Genesis chapter three, that God had given some very clear instructions to Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. He said, you can eat of everything. It all belongs to you. You can have it all except, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't don't eat that one, but you can have everything else. So what what do Adam and Eve want? What do we always want? We want the one thing we can't have. And while the instructions were clear, While the consequences were clear, Adam and Eve decided to disobey the command of God, to step outside of the clear direction of God, and as a result, they faced the clear consequence. The consequence of God to punish sin, driving them out of the garden, making work very difficult, making childbearing very hard. At this point, I I just want to encourage you that God's punishment of sin is good. The consequences that God gives for us when we sin are very good. They're good because what God is doing through the consequence, what God is doing through the discipline, is getting your attention, not allowing you to be comfortable with your rebellion, not allowing you to enjoy the fruit of your ungodliness but bringing you to a place of discipline and judgment for the sake of drawing you in to something even better. Relationship with God, favor with Him, forgiveness of sins, the freedom of not carrying the burden of sin around in your life, the the guilt and the shame that comes along with sin. So when God punishes sin, rejoice. The psalmist says in Psalm 32, it says, Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. You are to be happy. You are to rejoice. You are to celebrate the work of God in forgiving sin because through the forgiveness of sin and the discipline that comes along the way, God is drawing you to himself. God is faithful to judge sin. He's faithful to punish it. We also saw that God is faithful to provide salvation. That in the midst of our rebellion, God provides a way. And we saw that it didn't take long that the course of life and the the society and its filling up of ungodliness deserved again the consequence that God promised to Adam and Eve would also come upon them. That the, the new promises, the new covenants that God brings to his people does not disqualify, does not overcome the previous promises but builds upon them. So the fact that God punishes sin in the garden means that this is going to be an enduring precedent that God will set for the rest of time until Jesus comes back. And so God in punishing sin during Noah's day also provides a means of salvation, a way of deliverance, a rescue operation that happens through a boat and happens through obedience of building a boat just the way that God told Noah to build it. By the way, God is not navigating through, navigating his way through this life. He's not trying to figure things out. He's not trying to, to compensate for the failures of, of humanity. He, he's not uh, trying to anticipate what's going to come and, and then to try to figure out how he's going to correct whatever problems they created. We serve a sovereign God who is full of knowledge and full of sovereignty. He knows what's coming, and he's anticipated it already. He knows what, what's happening. And he has planned for it. So that every promise he gives is a promise that builds on the previous promise. God is perfect in wisdom. No surprises. Nothing that catches him off guard. Nothing that he hasn't considered. And that's why when God makes a promise, it remains intact. So God will make a new promise. Noah and his family will go onto this boat. They'll be rescued from the, from the flood that will occur, and when they come off the boat, God will make another promise. A promise to Noah and his family to establish them as a people and to never flood the earth again with water. And he puts a rainbow in the sky as a, as a testimony, a covenant promise that can be read by all and seen by all, this pledge that he will keep to never flood the earth by water again. God was faithful. A promise made was a promise kept. We also saw that God was faithful to establish a people. That God was calling a people to himself. He was interested in establishing relationship with those he's created. He did that with, with, with uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 in 15 and 17. This man named Abram and his wife Sarai, whose names were changed to Abraham and Sarah, were two individuals called out of the nations and God set his affection on them. And God will make a promise to them that we see in Genesis chapter 12. It reestablished in Genesis chapter 15. We see it again in chapter 17. And five times we find that God takes initiative. I will show you a nation. I will make you great. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will do it. The promise rests on me. My power to carry it through. My reputation on the line. I will do for you, Abraham, what you cannot do for yourself. (laughs) And so God takes Abraham and Sarah. Sarah who was barren. And God makes a nation from them to demonstrate that he is the one by whom will establish the promise. It rests on his ability to see it through. He will carry it on his shoulders. God will do it to glorify himself. Then we saw that God was faithful to communicate his standard. Four centuries would go by after God made this promise to Abraham and Sarah. This people would also uh, need to move to Egypt because of a famine that was taking place in the land of Canaan and God would provide another deliverer a deliverer named Joseph who initially was a slave sent to Egypt but God had a master plan for how he was going to use Joseph to rescue his people once again Joseph who was sinned against in the discipline that his brothers deserved would still be answered in a promise of deliverance through Joseph and God would begin to build a nation in the, in the least likely place, in Egypt of all places. God would grow this nation and a tension would build between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt and they would be led into slavery and captivity but God would provide another, another deliverer, Moses. Moses who would lead his people out of Egypt bring them to a place called Mount Sinai. And God there would reestablish his covenant promises to his people because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now would provide some conditions by which they could represent him in the world. His desire for them was that they would be a light to the Gentiles. His desire for them would that, would that be, they would be a treasured possession that they would be a holy priesthood. His desire was to create a worshiping community that would represent him in the world. But there was a condition. The condition was they needed to obey and mimic the character of God that was reflected in the law. This law, which was a perfect representation of the true nature and holy standard of God, as the people would represent him faithfully, they would... Encourage the nations to enjoy the same benefits of that relationship that they enjoyed but as you know the people were unable to perform to the level of and to the standard that God had set for the nations they were disobedient and so because of their disobedience they deserved punishment again and God would raise up eventually he would raise up a leader a leader named David and God would confirm his promise to David in spite of the rebellion of the people. God was faithful to confirm his promise to his people in spite of their rebellion. And as we find in, in this Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God will recount many of the same promises he had given to Abraham and build upon that and, and, and narrow in on David as the one in his legacy who would carry out and fulfill this plan that God had set this master salvation plan that God had built from the very beginning now we're beginning to see this progressive revelation of God the truth that was always there but now faithfully revealed in in new ways as as God is revealing a little bit more a little bit uh, greater glimpse of his plan for them as a people Throughout this Davidic covenant we find the initiating divine power of God at work God says to David and I'm going to key in on verse 13 it says he shall build a house for my name I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. I will do this. Time and time again, we see the faithful nature and power of God to do for Israel what they cannot do for themselves. And through this Davidic covenant we find, I will make, I will appoint, I will plant, I will give, I will make, I will raise, I will establish, I will be, I will discipline. Your throne and your kingdom will be made sure forever. So when God performs the very details of this covenant that we see, we can stand back and marvel at the wonder of the power of God to do what Israel could not do for themselves. God's power and reputation, his dependability is put on display through his ability to carry through the promises, the very specific promises that he has made to his people and God still intends to carry out this promise. There was a near and a distant and also a final eschatological implication with this promise that Solomon was just a foretaste of what God was going to do in the future that God through Solomon did bring peace to the people for a time God through Solomon did build a house a temple for him as we see in verse 13 God through Solomon was disciplined and uh, experienced the rod of correction from God and God, through Solomon, established his love to him in a secure kingdom, just like he said. The initial and immediate fulfillment was just a foreshadowing of the future fulfillment that we would be uh, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was the son of David. Jesus, who was the son of God. Jesus, who is the builder of the temple, the, the church, as we see in Ephesians chapter two. Jesus, who became sin. And the wrath of God landed on Jesus for the sake of his people. Jesus, who, whose love uh, enjoys the, the covenant steadfast love of the Father. But Jesus, who initiated this kingdom, preached and spoke about a kingdom, but that it was still yet future. Still, We still anticipate this future kingdom of God. God is faithful and God is faithful to carry out his promise as we see in the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 in Ezekiel 36 God is faithful to do for his people what they cannot do for themselves this is where we left off last week and I want to move through this and just draw your attention to a few things this morning so we can move to our final point God is faithful to carry out his promise Jeremiah in this situation and the people of Israel are probably in the, the most urgent, the most dire condition of their entire existence. This was not a time for God to make a promise. Doom was certain. The northern ten tribes had already been taken into captivity by Assyria. They, were, they no longer existed as a, as a nation. And now Judah was reduced to one main city. The whole country had been decimated by Babylon and Jerusalem alone was standing. The siege in Jerusalem was horrific. If you read the account of Jeremiah, you see the desperate measures that that families were resorting to in, in order to simply survive. But that, by the way, is when God makes his promise. God makes promises when only God can see it through. God makes promises when all hope is lost. God makes promises when human strength has been spent. God makes promises when the only answer is divine power. God makes promises when only the glory goes to him and is not shared by others. And so God makes this promise to Jeremiah in the worst possible scenario, the worst possible situation. And we find that in Jeremiah chapter 31. Verses one to four help us to understand that this promise is still to Israel. Notice, he's specific. At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you, and I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with the tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. And those who were living in Jerusalem, hearing that promise, would have thought, Jeremiah, you are off your rocker. This is an absolute impossibility. But God continues to establish and remind them of his everlasting promise that will not fail to them as a people, the clans of Israel, and as we'll see later, as the nation of Judah. It moves on. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 10 says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Declare it in the coastlands far away he who scattered Israel will gather them he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him you will be scattered and you will be scattered as a fulfillment of the initial promise that I will I will fulfill you will be punished for your sin and I will see it through but just as you've been scattered I will gather you I will ransom you. I will redeem you. The salvation belongs to me. The power rests in me. The ability to see it through is an ability that I will make and cause to happen. It happens through my power and my reputation. In verse 15, he says, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her her children. She refuses to be uh, comforted for her children because they are no more. Now that should sound familiar. That's exactly what happened when Jesus was born. So it's exactly what happened when Herod heard that there were babies. The Messiah was in Bethlehem and he slaughtered all the infants from two and under. The local and immediate fulfillment of that happening during Jeremiah's day day, the future fulfillment that happened in Christ's day all kind of blended and intermingled together in verses 31 to 34 now we get to the heart of this promise behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt my covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for these shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. The emphatic word and testimony of God to do for Israel what they could not do for themselves. And the beauty of this promise is it was based upon a thousand years of rebellion. Rebellion. A thousand years of resistance, a thousand year track record of walking away from God. And when God finally establishes his people the way that he has said he will restore his people, then the world will know, the nations will know that God is in control. Because God will do for Israel what they cannot do for themselves I will make, I will put, I will write, I will be, I will do this. It depends on on my power. It depends on my reputation and my ability to see this through. He alone is faithful. The patriarchs could not do it. The mediating leadership of Moses could not do it. The judges could not do it. The priests in the religious systems could not do it. The great leaders and kings could not do it. Only God can do it. And that is the testimony of what we see from Genesis to Revelation. The work of God of doing what only God can do. That faith is a gift from God. And rebellion is also a work of God in hardening hearts. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago that in Romans chapter 11, that for a time, God will allow a, a partial hardening to happen to Israel, so that we as Gentiles might enjoy the, the covenant blessings of being a part of Abraham through faith in Christ. God will produce for them what they cannot. And that is the point of all these covenants. That is the point of God's promise. God will keep it because God will do it. It rests on Him, not on us. And so when we come, we are this final faithful, promise of god that god is faithful to avenge israel we can also understand the legacy and testimony of god's faithfulness will also demonstrate itself in his ability to avenge israel this day of the lord as we walk through the the day of the lord i just want to address a few questions that maybe you will have i certainly had them as i was thinking about the day of the lord the first is what is this day of the lord what are we talking about? What does it mean? Well, the day of the Lord is, as you know, day can refer to either a 24 hour period in the Hebrew or can refer to a season in that day or in that season or in that time. And this certainly is that, an example of that, that there is a season or a time, this, this day in which God will begin to mete out his judgment on the earth. The day of the Lord is also referred to as the day of wrath or the day of vengeance the day of visitation, the day of doom. The Bible uses this exact phrase 32 times in the Old and New Testament. But when we add in these other descriptors, we find as many as as 56 times where, where the Bible refers to the day of the Lord or the day of wrath or the day of vengeance. In the scripture, the day of the Lord signifies this extraordinary event, this intervention of God in history to judge the world his final judgment of the wicked and destruction of the present universe. The Old Testament refers to the day of the Lord in a couple of different ways. It refers to the day of the Lord as a, an immediate punishment on a particular group of people. It also refers to a distant eschatological day of the Lord that we still anticipate, that's still coming. But there are at least 19 times in the Old Testament and at least four times in the New Testament where the day of the Lord refers to this eschatological culmination event, this day of the Lord. I've given to you several references in your notes that you can refer to. I think it's just a sampling, really, of, of the Old Testament passages that speak about the day of the Lord. And I'll give that to you for your own uh, benefit and homework. The day of the Lord is a day where God will have his way on the earth. And as we saw in our passage this morning in Isaiah chapter 34, we we saw that the day of the Lord is actually referred to as a day of vengeance. A day of vengeance. What, What is this day of vengeance? Why is it described in this way? As we have said from the beginning, the promises of God are still intact. The promises that God gave all the way back to Abraham and even all the way back to Adam are still intact. And so, his promise to Abraham, when he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, God will make good on his promise to curse those who oppose Israel by exacting vengeance upon them. God makes good on that promise. This word vengeance or the word to avenge is used about 60 times in the scripture. Again, uh, several of those references are captured there for you in the notes. The vast majority of those references refer to a vengeance that God will himself exact upon the opponents of Israel. But there are instances in which Israel is used as an instrument of God, a tool of God to, to mete out vengeance on the world. Example of that would be in Numbers chapter 31 verses 1 to 3. Israel is wandering through the wilderness and if you remember the story uh, several weeks ago when, when Tom talked about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet for hire and King Balak who was the king of Moab and Midian hired Balaam to prophesy against the people of Israel. <laughs> Balaam as you remember was unable to speak a word against Israel and on five occasions actually spoke blessing. So in order for Balaam to get his pay, in order for him to enjoy the benefits of this contract with King Balak, decides, I'm going to get around this speaking problem and I'm going to cause Israel to sin, to follow after other gods. So he introduces the women of Midian who entice the men of Israel not only in terms of sexual immorality, but also in terms of of idolatry, and they capture their hearts away, and God brings judgment on the nation of Israel as a result. So God, later in this story, in Numbers chapter 31, commands Moses and the people of Israel to avenge themselves for the sake of God against the Midianites, in Numbers 31, where he says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites afterward you shall be gathered to your people so Moses spoke to the people saying arm uh, men from among you for war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian they opposed Israel and because of God's faithful obligation to his promise to curse those who curse Israel God exercises vengeance on them we see throughout the prophets a number of other examples and kingdoms in which God also uh, exacts vengeance on them. In Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, we find uh, that God is coming against Assyria and Babylon and Edom and Ammon and Moab and Philistia because of their opposition to the people of Israel. But in Ezekiel chapter 25, we find a number of really clear examples. Numbers, or Ezekiel 25, 15 to 17, says this. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines acted revengefully and and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the seacoast I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them when God stands in holiness and executes vengeance in a way that the world can see then the world will take notice and say truly God is who he says he is Then the world will know that I am the Lord when they see that God is faithful to this promise. There are a number of other examples that we could go to, um, but we don't have time for that this morning. The next question you might be asking yourself is, is when will all this this happen? Uh, What will this look like? When the day of the Lord takes place, what sort of things will I be able to expect? What will happen during this time? There are several Uh, Examples that we can find throughout the the Old Testament. But uh, I have just captured here, I think, five different examples. First, it will be marked by the terror of the Lord. Marked by the terror of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 and 19 help us to see that. When it says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. And the people shall enter the caves and the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rides to terrify the earth. The presence and splendor and glory and prominence of God will be seen and it will be awful in the sight of the nations. God will terrify them. It will also be marked by worldwide judgment as we see in Isaiah chapter 34 verse 2, our passage this morning. It says, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has uh, devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. No one will be untouched. The entire earth are under the microscope of God and he will fulfill his promise to punish sin as he did to Adam and Eve. He will be faithful. It's also marked by humbling the proud. In Isaiah chapter 2, there's a, a whole passage here that we don't have time to look at this morning, but uh, it, 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 uh, it focuses on bringing the haughty people to humility. But Isaiah chapter 2 also talks about everything that has raised itself in haughtiness against, against God, in pride against God, will be lowered. It talks about the trees of Lebanon. It talks about the mountains that have raised itself in in esteem in this world. But here in 2.17, the focus is on the pride of men. And the haughtiness of men shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. That's the point of the day of the Lord the exaltation and the glory of God put on display for the world to see it's also marked by death as we find in Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 through the rest of the chapter it says this behold the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners from it I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of arrogance and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. God will exact justice and holiness on the earth. He will allow the nations to be purged. And finally, it will be marked by signs in the heaven. As we see in Joel chapter 2, verses 30 to 31, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God will make this visible not only in terms of the things that are happening around the world and not only in terms of the splendor of his glory being put in preeminent display but also the the wonders of the skies will signify the coming judgment of God that leads us to our final question is the day of the Lord still future if you want to know the answer to that question come back next week so what does this do for us What should the reality of the judgment of God do for those who love Jesus? There are two things. The first, it should make us stand in awe at the mercy and grace of God. It should humble us in a way that helps us to realize that that the goodness and the kindness of God is so undeserved as we evaluate our life in, 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 the, in the light of sin, as we evaluate our own life in, in light of the judgment that God brought and discipline that God brought on Israel and the nations, as we see what we deserve and we also come to understand the, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus for our sake, it should bring us to a place of wonder at the incredible mercy of God for us. I love how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That is, by the way, the incentive for everything in the the Christian life. The mercy of God that, that compels us to obey and to love and to worship and to witness I beseech you therefore brothers by the mercies of God present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable act of worship God has created a people for himself and his people are those who have received the benefits of mercy and so as we stand in awe of the mercy of God it should humble us today and create within us a reverence and a desire to obey and worship God with every breath that we take. The second response that we should have is a burden of compassion for those who have not yet enjoyed the benefits of mercy. Not a gleeful response at the holiness of God being vented on an ungodly world, but a compassion of heart and soul to desire for them what we didn't deserve, to desire for them mercy, not to desire judgment, not to desire vengeance, not to desire that God would hold them accountable for their injustices towards us, but that God would do for them what He has done for us in extending mercy. So there should be an urgency in us an urgency as we look around our communities, an urgency for you students as you go to school, as you interact with kids that don't know Christ, with teachers that don't know Jesus, as you are working with and and living across the street from those who don't know Jesus, wrath of God will come and you have not met a mere mortal May there be a compassion, a growing burden in our hearts for the mission that God has called us to in extending the grace and mercy of God through the gospel so they can be beneficiaries of the work of Christ on the cross. Oh God, may there be an urgency about us as your people. May there be a softening in us as your people. May we come to reflect on the wonder of your grace to us. And may it lead us to worship of you and may it lead us to loving our neighbor in a way we have never loved our neighbor before. God, may we be faithful representatives of Jesus. May we be the extending light to the nations. This city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden, may that be our testimony as we represent you in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week.